All right, call your first witness. Call Dana Moore. Miss Moore, I don't remember you being sworn. Were you sworn this morning? All right, come on around. You state your name and uh, where you live for the jury. Dana Moore, 1398 East Barton. And uh, who do you live there on East Barton with? My husband and my daughter. And what relation are you to, or uh, were you to Michael Moore? His mother. How old was Michael? Eight. Where did he go to school? Weaver. Okay. And uh, what grade was he in? Second. Whose room was he in? Uh, Miss Miller. And do you know what uh, relationship or acquaintanceship he had with Stevie Branch and Chris Byers? They were all in the same Boy Scout troop. On, uh, I want to direct your attention to May the 5th of 1993. Um, after school, uh, when did you uh, see Michael? About 10 after 3. Okay. And uh, what time does school let out? 3 o'clock. And where is the school in relation to your home? Right next door. And in the afternoon, uh, did you see Michael um, occasionally in and out? Yes, sir. All right. Was he with anybody? He was with Steve Branch. Okay. Approximately what time did you last see uh, Michael? At 6 o'clock that evening. And where did you last see him? Uh, going down 14th Street. And who was he with? Steve and Christopher. And how were they uh, going? Uh, they were on bikes. Chris was riding with Steve and Michael was riding his bike. Was there some time when, when Michael was supposed to be home? Uh, yes, sir. He, uh, he needed to be home around supper. All right. And, in fact, when you saw him, what were the circumstances under when you, which you last saw him? It was supper time. All right. And what happened when you, at the time you last saw him? I sent my daughter after him to bring him home. Okay. And did she return? Yes, sir. Okay. And I take it Michael did not return? No, sir. Okay. What you just heard was the testimony of Michael Moore's mother, Dana Moore, at trial. Before we move on to today's interview, it's important to cement in your mind the statements that Dana made here. She says that she first saw her son Michael after school at about 3.10 and that he left to go down to Stevie Branch's house. She also says that Stevie and Michael were in and out throughout the day and that Michael was supposed to be home around dinner time. And then lastly, that she saw Michael, Stevie, and Christopher together on North 14th Street, headed north around 6 p.m. After they rode out of sight, she says that she then sent her daughter Dawn up the street to look for Michael to bring him back for dinner. This is the story and the narrative that we've all been familiar with for going on 25 years now. But as you're about to hear, 
as we're finding out with many other elements of this case, nothing is as it seems. A few weeks ago, I was able to make contact with Michael's sister, Dawn. And that's the interview that you're going to hear right after this break for the ads. How old were you when this happened? You were a little older than Michael, right? Yeah, um, I just turned 10. Now, is the, you know, that's all over the internet. It says that Stevie and you were pretty close. Is, was that, is that accurate? Yes. I'd even seen something about so that he had given you a friendship bracelet or something like that. Yeah, for my birthday, he gave me a uh, birthstone ring. A birthstone ring. Okay. And then, and then your name comes up for the first time when your mom says, that uh, she had seen the the three boys going north on 14th Street, and then she'd sent you out after them looking for them. You remember that? I remember that being said. I don't remember her sending me out to go and get him. That's one thing that never made sense to me, you know, that she's saying that she had just seen him, you know, going around the corner of 14th Street, and I come up and she sends me to go and get him for dinner, you know, for me, that never made sense because I wouldn't, as a parent, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I know about when dinner's going to be ready. You know, if I see a kid, hey, it's time to come in, you know. Right. I don't remember that. I mean, I can't say that it, for a fact it didn't happen, but I don't remember that happening. They went on to, and I remember, I think it was her, your mom's statement that had said that you had went up and got up towards the woods. And saw, what was it, you saw three boys, and there was like two black boys and one white boy, and they had offered you, I think I think the quote was, they offered you a shot. Does any of that ring a bell to you? That did happen, but that actually happened a lot earlier in the day, before I ever even saw Dana. And how did you, was Dana not home? I'm guessing that she wasn't. Most of the time, Michael and I took care of ourselves. There wasn't really much parenting in the home. Todd was gone all the time. You know, he was a truck driver. Mm -hmm. So he was gone all the time. Dana, I'm not sure if it's at the time or not. I know she worked at McDonald's at the time. And I think she also worked at a liquor store. But we just took care of ourselves. Okay. Is that, I mean, is that something you want to talk about? Is that, is that a a strained relationship then or not? Oh, I have nothing to do with my parents at all. Nothing. I have absolutely no problem telling the truth. When it comes to my own crap or their crap or any of it, we've all done stuff. I'm not ashamed of anything that I've done. Okay. And I own up to the shit I've done. People see Todd and Dana as basically kind of like the saints out of everyone involved in this case. Mm-hmm. You know, that they're just, they're great. They can do no wrong. They were wonderful people. And that is so far from the truth. And people don't have a clue what it was like living in that home. Well, can you talk a little bit about what it was like? Uh, Terrifying. Really? And how's that? They were very, very strict. They drank constantly, for one. I don't remember seeing either one of my parents sober until until Dana uh, killed that woman. And she was put on probation. That was the first time I ever saw Dana sober. And that was in a car accident, right? Right. And was that that was before Michael was killed, right? No, that was after. Oh, okay. Afterwards. But do you remember about how long after? 
Um, I want to say it was 94, 95, something like that. So, and before that, they, they both had alcohol problems? Yes. Okay. Was there any, any physical abuse that went on in the house? Yes. Okay. Um, do you, do you want to get into that at all or elaborate on that? We got spankings regularly and they didn't stop until we cried. We got spankings for anything, really. I mean, it could be something as small as telling a little lie or something big. It, it didn't matter. Was there any kind of, any, any sexual abuse or was it just, just that type of physical abuse? Just a physical as, as far as I can remember. Now, when did you, because obviously you've had a falling out with your parents, you don't speak to them and or have anything to do with them. When did, when did that occur? When did you make that break? I made the final break almost two years ago, but our relationship has always been on and off. It's never been constant. When I turned 17 and left home, you know, it's kind of been very, very strained. We go long periods of time without having anything to do with each other. And was there always ever just the, the two of you, just Michael and yourself, as far as children? Yeah, it was just us. Going back to that that night, I mean, it's, it sounds like maybe your mom's statements are not all that accurate. Because one, one thing that people have asked, and I, and I was confused about, she told police that, or maybe it was in trial, that she had told Michael when he said he wanted to go out ride his bike that he could stay out until the streetlights came on. But then she also said that at six o'clock she sent you out after him, which was two hours before it got dark. Didn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, I, I guess what are you? What is your recollection, if you have any, as far as what the timeline was that night with Michael? Was she even home after school? No. Typically, no one was home after school. Um, we usually didn't see our parents until the streetlights came on and we had to go home. But. One thing that, that I know that she has left out is us going to get something to eat at 8 o'clock that night. Just you and her? Yeah. It's my understanding that when she supposedly sent me to go get Austin, that it was because either dinner was ready or dinner was almost ready, something like that. Mm-hmm. Which she didn't cook last night because we ended up, we stopped looking for him. And went to Crystal's at eight o'clock. Crystal's is a restaurant. Oh, yeah, I, I, that's right. It's a. I, I remember seeing that restaurant down there. Because uh, somewhere around there, around eight thirty or so, I think, is when she went across the street to the buyer's house. So was that after you guys got back from eating? I'm not a hundred percent sure. Okay, and that that time seems accurate because it didn't come from her. That came from uh, Mark Byers on the police report that she'd got the the officer got there around like ten after eight. She was there for a little while. And then as she was leaving, your mom walked across the street and talked to her also. We were coming from the branch house when we saw the police over there. Oh, you guys had gone down to Stevie's house? Yeah, we we had already been looking for a while. Okay. Um, See, that was never, nobody ever knew that. At least I didn't. You know, because your mom just didn't have a whole lot of contact with the police. There's not a lot of from her on the record other than this story that... She sent you all looking for him at six and then, you know, that she saw the police cross the street. So, so you guys had already gone out looking at that point. Yeah. Okay. And were you with her when you got back and you saw the police at the buyer's house? Yeah. I was with her until late, late that night. Do you ever, did you guys ever come across, uh, Stevie's stepdad, Terry? 
Yeah, we saw him at his house, and then I remember seeing him after he'd gone to pick up Pam. Okay, after he'd come back with her? Yeah. Do you have any idea, like, as far as, and I'm sure times aren't really going to make a lot of sense, but as far as, like, with other things that happened, with going out to dinner, seeing the police, when about did you see Terry at his house? It was before we saw the police. Like, directly before? Like, you saw him at his house, left, and then came back and saw police? I'm not exactly sure on that one, because I think we went by several times. Um, Because I knew that Michael was with Stevie. I didn't see him with Chris. I saw him with Steve. When and where did you see him with Stevie? I saw him with Steve going into Robin Hood. Okay. And that was, I don't know, about 4 or 5 o'clock, something like that. I mean, it was after school. Okay. Before I saw Dana. Okay. So did you go home at all after school or did you just go straight out and start playing in the neighborhood? Uh, we went home, dropped our stuff off and went playing. So you, you went home with Michael? Yes. So the whole conversation that she gave police that she had with Michael about going to play with Stevie, that never even happened? Well, I'm the one that gave him permission to go to Steve's. Okay. So, so your mom or Dawn wasn't, wasn't even there. That just, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what it tells us, but you know, for me, the, a big part of trying to figure these things out is trying to figure out what we call victimology, which is really understanding what was going on in the kids' lives and what was going on that day. And it's like she, she's given the police a completely false narrative. Why do you think she would have told that just because it made her look bad? I mean, I, I, why yeah. do you think she just didn't want to tell the police that because she didn't want them to know that she wasn't even home when you guys got home? Todd and Dana care more about their image than anything else. Now, when, now you, you, was it a re- regular occurrence that every day you said you got home that, that Dana wasn't there? Yeah. Okay. Now, was was she working or was or what was she out doing around that time? I'm not exactly sure. I know there was a couple of times that I can remember her packing her stuff up and leaving and us driving around with Todd looking for her. Uh, there was one time that our house caught on fire, one of the times, and we ended up finding her across the street at the buyer's house. You know, and this was 8, 9 o'clock at night, something like I mean, it was dark. So it was typical for us to not have anyone at home. We didn't really question it. You know, that just, we were happier that way. And so we were just fine with it. If I have this right, so as far as the timeline for you is you and Michael walked home from school together, dropped your stuff off, and he asked you if he could go to Stevie's and you gave him permission to go. And then he leaves. And then what did you go do? We usually didn't walk home together. I had the the house key, and we would just meet at home because, you know, God forbid brother and sister be seen out in public together. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) But, yes, I gave him permission to go to Steve's, and then I went to my friend Kim Williams' house. She lived on Wilson, one street over from 14th. Kim Wilson also gave a statement. Maybe that's where I read where she said that you had also told her that you saw Two black guy, two black. Were they were they young boys in the woods? Or? Yeah, she was with me whenever I saw them. They were young, I would say teenagers, and they asked me if I wanted a shot. And you know, I didn't even think about drinking because my parents didn't drink shots. You know, they had drinks, so I immediately went to drugs, and it freaked me out, and we left. 
you said you saw Stevie and Michael going into the woods. Where was that in relation to the sighting of those three boys? Directly across the street. Okay. Um, what about timing wise? Was it before, or after, or about the same time? Same exact time. Michael and Steve had shown up at Kim's house mm-hmm. and asked if they could go into Robin Hood. And the rule was that we weren't supposed to, but we didn't know why. It was just no. And I didn't know anything about Robin Hood or anything. And, you know, Michael told me that there were bike trails in there and that uh, they had kind of like a clubhouse or something. And that's all they were going to do, you know, nagging me. And finally I said, yeah, don't tell mom and dad. As soon as they left, Kim started telling me, you know, kids go in there and do drugs and have sex and all this stuff. So Kim and I went to go get them, and when we came up uh, right to the right of Devil's Den, there's a ditch right there, and we saw them going in right there where that ditch is. I guess it's a ditch. There was a little walkway kind of right there beside the house, and we saw them, just the back of them going into that and directly across the street where those boys were standing. Now, I've heard that that phrase come up several times, the devil's den. What part of the woods was that? So I, I know where the right at Goodwin and 14th, there's like a path that goes into the Robin Hoods area. And then it kind of, you know, those bike trails kind of go around to the left. Where was where was this devil's den area? Devil's den, I think it it's right there by 14th. And really all it is, is it's kind of like just a little bitty driveway. Okay. Yeah, I know right where that's at. And so that's yeah, it. that's what they call Devil's Den. Okay, good. So I was that's one of the things that confused me because some people thought it was on the other side of the pipe, and some people thought it was over here. So they were they were back in that area when you saw them, and you saw those other two boys. So at some point, you must have went home, obviously. Yeah, we went back to Kim's for a little while, and then I went by the house and told Dana that they were in Robin Hood that we needed to go get them. And that's another thing Dana never told anyone is that I repeated over and over again, Michael is in Robin Hood. I saw him go in there. And that's another thing Dana never told anyone is that I repeated over and over again, Michael is in Robin Hood. I saw him go in there. So when you went home, would that have been somewhere around six o'clock, maybe five or six? It might have been. I'm not really sure. Okay. But when you got home, Dana was home then. Right. And you told her we need to go get him. He's in Robin Hood. Did you guys go up there or did she just ignore you? Oh, she just ignored me. We didn't go to Robin Hood until after Terry had already picked up Pam from work. Okay. So that was well after dark. Yes. Was it around that time when you said they were in Robin Hood that you guys started driving around looking for him? It was whenever I went home and told her, you know, that Michael was in there. We kind of started driving around. It was typical for Michael to not come home. So I'm... guessing that she just assumed this was just another one of those times. So it was normal for us to have to go looking for Michael. 
you know, he would be at a friend's house or something inside playing or whatever. It started off just kind of like that. Just trying to figure out where he's at. Right. Okay. And you said you guys went by the Stevie's house a couple of times. Right. Was there, I know you said the one time Terry was there. Did you guys go down, go there at all? And he wasn't there. I don't remember. I didn't get out of the car. I just remember seeing him and Dana standing at the door. And that was right before you came back to the house and the police were there. Yeah. It was daylight when I saw him. Okay. So she's driving around looking for him and you're telling her that, you know, he's up there in Robin Hood and she just never even bothered. Did she even drive up in that area? No, we didn't even drive past it. Did you think she didn't believe you or that's that's just so odd? Why would she completely ignore that when she's supposedly looking for him? I don't know. Uh, That's one thing that I never understood either. It was kind of like she just completely blocked me out and didn't hear anything that I was saying to her. You know, we just, we kept driving by his friend's house throughout the neighborhood. I would say probably 90% of this case was completely kept from me. A few years ago, I decided to kind of look at it myself. So I kind of go back and forth getting into it because, you know, it'll start getting emotional and I just back away from it for a little while. Right. I understand. So you were obviously familiar with Chris and his family because you lived right across the street. What what do you know? What do you know? What was your overall impression of Chris as a little boy and his relationship with his parents, his parents, anything that was going on before, before, during or after all this happened? Well, you know, Chris was, you know, Michael's friend. You know, he was just this scrawny little snot-nosed kid that ran around with Michael. Mm -hmm. And they got in trouble together. I mean, they were so much alike. They really, you would have thought for them to be siblings rather than us. Okay. Um, (laughs) Mark was terrifying. What do you mean by that? He kept a belt hanging up somewhere in the living room. And that was the spanking belt. And it didn't matter if they were having a party and there were 20 people there. It didn't matter if it was just us. If Chris did something and Mark wanted to spank him, he was spanking him right there. Okay. I was always scared of Mark. Uh, Melissa, I loved Melissa. Okay. Uh, she was really nice and loving and they were just kind of total opposites of each other. So she was very sweet. Yeah, she was. Did you have much involvement with the Byers family after the boys went missing and they were found? No. Okay. Do you know if your parents did? Other than court stuff, you know, not that I know of. They were really good friends for a long time. And suddenly we weren't allowed to go over there. We couldn't talk to Chris. Everything just completely stopped. We were supposed to completely ignore them like they did not even exist. This was before the, the incident where the boys were killed? Yes. So they, so that was a direct instruction to, to stay away from the buyer's family? Yeah. Do you have any idea why that was? I don't know. Oh, and what about Stevie? So you were you were pretty close with Stevie, right? Yeah. So what can you tell about him and and what you know of from him about his home life or anything like that? I really don't know. Um, 
I'd been to his house a couple of times. You know, Pam and Terry were nice to me. You know, they didn't, um, it wasn't anything like going to the buyer's house. You know, Steve never complained about them or anything. You know, it was just kind of very normal, you know? Right. Or it appeared that way. <laughs> so Steve seemed like a pretty happy kid. Yeah. Uh, did you spend quite a bit of time with him? Not really. Maybe just a few months. And, you know, at that age, we were going out. So, I mean, we just kind of hung out, you know, every now and then. <laughs> right. Him and Michael spent a lot of time together. You know, and Michael and I would go over there and play with him and Amanda. I don't ever remember them really coming to our house. I believe Steve might have come over maybe once or twice, and it wasn't for very long. Okay. Get back to, to Dana and Todd. So Todd was gone that night, right, out tr- driving the truck? I'm assuming that's what he was doing. I know he wasn't at home. Okay. When you finally came home and, and Dana was finally there, do you remember, do you think that had she been drinking or anything like that that night, or she had just maybe come home from work? Probably both. She always had a drink in her hand. I know that she had started drinking while we were looking, but I can't remember if when I first saw her, if she had already started drinking, but that was very typical for them. As soon as they hit the door, they went for a drink. So it sounds like, would you describe them as being alcoholics back then? Oh, yes. Okay. How were things with them and around the house after the boys were found? I mean, I've, I've only ever seen, you know, they don't, they don't seem to do interviews really. So I've only ever seen what, what's been on the documentaries. What, what was life like after that? I was pretty much on my own. I don't really, the first year, I, I only remember bits and pieces. And most of that, I was by myself. You know, I withdrew from everybody, and, and I basically stayed in my room. So I'm not really sure what the the house was like in that first year. Were you still in contact with them? You know, I know when, when the, the three who were convicted of the murder uh, took their Alfred plea and were released, some of the parents, you know, John Mark and, and Pam, all thought they were innocent. and. Your dad, Todd, especially, seemed to be very vocal about the fact that he thought they were guilty. Were you still in contact with them about that time? Yes. I assume they probably, they still believe that those, the three that were convicted were the ones that did it? Yes. Do you have any idea what, why they feel so strongly about it? I mean, is it just, it's just easier to cope or was there, is there something that, that we don't know that, they, that they know that, that makes them feel so strongly about it? I mean, mo- most people that are familiar with the case, at least, you know, have some doubt and wonder one way or the other, but they seem very vocal about the fact that they were guilty. You know, I I don't understand why they hold so strongly to that, but it's always just kind of been like, it's a hundred percent. They're guilty. It's a hundred percent. And I've always believed that way. But once I started working through my own issues, I kind of reached a point to where I was like, really, I don't even care. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, for me, it doesn't matter who's guilty because it's done with. It's not going to change anything. Right. Um, but Todd and Dana hold on to that really, really strongly. They still have a lot of anger about it. 
Okay. Is it, and I think somebody told me, and I've never seen it, but that your dad, especially is like in, uh, on, in online forums or Facebook or something that is, and is like active talking about the case in that regards. Do you know if that's true? Is because like I said, you never see him interviewed and I tried to reach out to them and got no response from them or do they pretty much just keep to themselves? They stick to the people that think like they do. Todd, I know he's involved with other people that believe in, in their guilt. Dana, I'm not sure. Um, I know that both of them have ventured off a little bit and gotten a little bit into other groups that are kind of both sides. However, they typically don't last very long in those groups. <laughs> they get booted out or they, uh, they leave? Both. They, um, they can be very abusive in the way that they talk to people. Mm-hmm. And so anyone that does not believe that they're guilty and tries to express why they believe that way or try to kind of debate certain facts or whatever, Todd especially will get very angry and very hostile towards people. Is he usually, are these usually like Facebook groups? Yes. Does he go into these groups under his own name or do they? As far as I know, his own name. <laughs> okay. I always wonder because people get onto our Facebook page and, you know, there's always people with fake names and fake avatars that are on there that in there, you know, cause I, you know, I had, I haven't made necessarily made my mind up one way or the other. I have my own theories, but you know, I, I welcome any healthy debate or conversation about it, but I don't put up with, you know, people that start calling names and just getting abusive and nasty. Uh, in those forums. And I always wonder the people that have the, that come in and do that with fake names and fake icons and avatars. It's like, who are these people really? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's not only that Todd and Dana with their drinking, they will, (laughs) they'll go into a group and start bashing each other and just going off. And I don't know, you know, if, the admins are, are just trying to protect them or, you know, whatever. But they typically will go ahead and get them out, you know, because mm-hmm. it happens a lot. <laughs> it's such an odd behavior to me that, like, I understand holding so strongly that the three are guilty because it's easier to kind of have closure, you know, with, you know, if they're guilty, it's over and they don't have to think about it anymore. But then to combine yeah. that with the fact that they actively... You know, get online and constantly have these arguments. I don't, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm just, it's just so odd to me. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, neither one of them have dealt with Michael's death at all. They drank through it. I haven't talked to either one of them in almost two years, but you know, even back then, I can't tell them a funny story that, you know, stuff that Michael and I did that I know they didn't know about, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it would send them spiraling, you know, they would get upset and be drunk for a week straight. And I mean, it was just insane. They've never dealt with any of it. Is that why you, you ended up cutting off contact with them? No, I cut off contact with them because they kidnapped my son. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My oldest son is 18 now. Years ago in 2009, I was addicted to drugs and went to rehab. My father and I were given joint custody of my kids. What I didn't know was that my father had it set up to where 
on paper we have joint custody, but in real life, I have no rights. In 2010, I was done with rehab and everything. I moved back. All of my kids lived with me. My son turned 16 and started acting like he was insane. Um, had legal issues and everything like that. I sent him to Dana's house. He was supposed to spend a month there and chill out and try to become normal and then come back home. That was the plan. Um, he was there for a few weeks. My son's probation officer called me and said, your son is no longer in the state. Uh, your father has him and, uh, there's nothing we can do. And so I completely cut them off at that point. So is your son still with them? Uh, he's with Todd. Yes. Are, are Todd and Dana not together anymore? No, they got divorced in either 03, 04, sometime around there. Are you still in the Memphis area? Yes, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> in West Memphis or in, in Memphis? I'm in Marion. It's right beside West Memphis. Okay. And is Dana still down that way? She lives in Jordan, Arkansas, which is by Mountain Home. Okay, I'm not real familiar. How far is that from West Memphis? I want to say maybe about three hours. It's in the uh, northwest corner of Arkansas, close to the Missouri border. Okay. And then Todd moved out east somewhere, didn't he? He's in Virginia with his wife. And so Todd took the took your son, and Dana, but you cut off contact. Did Dana allow that? Is that why? Yeah. Dana and I were on very, very good time. As soon as I dropped my son off, within a week, he had completely cut me off from him. I wasn't allowed to talk to him, nothing. So it started getting bad, and she worked with Todd on getting my son out of the state. Okay, and that was, you said 2010? or No, that was just two years ago. Yeah. Okay. Do you, As far as new information, as far as the case and trying to track the boy's timeline, the fact that Dana wasn't home, have you ever discussed that with her? Does she does she deny that, or do you think she would deny that that's true? More than likely, she would deny that's true. I've never discussed it with her. Um, really, I can't discuss anything related to Michael with either one of them, but it's really bad with Dana because, like I said, they, they'll get drunk and it'll be bad. Um, mm -hmm. But Dana gets very, very abusive with it. To the point of it's your fault that Michael's dead and, you know, things like that. So I've stayed clear of that with her. Right. She says that to Todd? Oh, no, to me. Oh, to you. Yeah. Does she ever elaborate? Why would she possibly blame you? Because I was responsible for him. Don Moore's interview completely changes the way we look at specifically Michael Moore's victimology. We've all taken it for fact for over two decades that Michael went home to his loving mother, who gave him permission to go down to Stevie's house and ride bikes on the day that he was killed. But as you just heard, according to Don, the Moore's household was very different than what we've all perceived. Now, in an effort to stay neutral and fair, I want to point out that I did reach out to both Dana and Todd Moore to get their response to this. 
I tried reaching out to them through Facebook, as well as sending them text messages, and I haven't heard back from either one of them. But in all fairness, it's possible that they haven't seen the correspondences or that the phone numbers were wrong. But I would still love to talk to both Todd and Dana. But since I haven't been able to get a hold of them, I had to go back to the evidence to see if what Dawn just told us is possible. Could Dana Moore have been lying when she said that she was home when Michael got home from school, and also that after she saw the three boys, that she sent Dawn out after them? Well, the first thing that caught my attention when I really started to think about it was all of John Mark Byer's statements, and even Ryan Clark, Christopher Byer's brother's statements as well. They both described the time after Ryan got home from school when they couldn't find Chris and they were looking around. The most common person for Chris to be playing with is his friend who was right across the street, Michael Moore. But neither of them says anything about them talking to Dana to ask if she's seen Chris. And then we move on to some interviews with Pam and Terry Hobbs. The first interview I'm going to read you a portion from is from 2007 when an officer Mitchell at the West Memphis Police Department was interviewing Pam. Here's an excerpt from her interview. I walked up to the store to get me a pack of cigarettes. By the time I arrived at school, it was only 2.45, and I didn't want to sit around and wait another 20 minutes or so because it was kind of hot that day. Amanda was getting irritable, so I went in and checked Stevie out of school, and then we walked home. He goes on to say, He was keeping his bike in the house. First thing he did was went to his room to get his bike. Well, one of the rules before Steve, you know, could watch cartoons or whatever, he needed to do his homework first. And, uh... And when he went to get his bike, I said, son, what do you think you're doing? Don't you have to do homework? He said, mama, my homework is already done. He showed it to me, and I seen that the homework was done. And I hung it on the refrigerator, and he goes out to the carport. He was just, you know, going to ride around the yard. And I'm going to say about 3.15, Michael Moore came to the house on his bike and asked me if Steve could go riding bikes with him. And I told him, I said, no, not today. I got to get ready for work, and it was getting close to the time for me to get ready for work because I had to be to work at 5. And plus, you know, I always cooked their meals and things like that before I went to work. And I said, I'm cooking and all this. And Steve and Michael both kept begging, please, please, please. And parents do tend to give in to your children sometimes. So I said, okay, Steve, you can go. But son, if you're not home by 4.30, I'm going to ground you for two weeks from that bike. Then a little further down the transcript, Pam says the following. When they go to leave, Michael Moore lifted up his little arms and I thought he had on a watch. I guess later found out it was a compass or something that was found, but I thought it was a watch. He said, my mom is not home, but she'll be home in five minutes, I promise you. So here in this interview at the West Memphis Police Department, Pam recounts that Michael told her specifically that his mother was not home when he left, but that she would be home shortly. Then let's move on to another interview where Pam and Terry Hobbs together were interviewing for Dimension Films. This was a film that never ended up being made, but due to a later lawsuit, the transcripts of this interview became public record. Here's Pam from that interview. Quote, Michael asked if Stevie could come over to his house. I told him, no, not today. I'm getting ready for work. I'm cooking supper and all that. And Stevie and Mike were both begging, please, please, I'll be back. And I said, boy, if you're not back home by 4.30, you're grounded for two weeks. And so Stevie and Michael just left as happy as they could be. I thought Michael had a watch on because he told me as he rolled off, he said, quote, my mom's not home yet, but she'll be home in five minutes, I promise. So now we have John Mark Byers and Ryan Clark not mentioning that they talked to Dana Moore or went over there looking for Christopher. 
We have in two separate interviews where Pam says that Michael specifically told her that his mother wasn't home. Then we have a little further evidence as that interview goes on and Terry Hobbs chimes in. This is when he's explaining what happened when he got home from work. He says, quote, I asked her, where's Stevie at? Because Amanda was there and she said he's off riding his bicycle. He'll be home at 430. I walk out the driveway and look, you know, closer it gets to 430 to see if I can see him coming down the road because I had to take her to work by five. Pam chimes in. We left about 445 so we could go by the moors to see if Stevie was there and tell him he was grounded. But, you know, they wasn't there. And also in Pam's 2007 police interview, she reiterates the same story that they left a few minutes early for work so they could stop by the moors. But there was no sign of Stevie and Michael. She doesn't specifically say one way or another if Dana was there or not, but she doesn't describe seeing Dana or talking to Dana, just that they drove by and the boys weren't there. After listening to Dawn's interview and comparing it to the interviews of other parents, there's no way possible for us to make an absolute judgment call here, but the evidence certainly seems to be shifting towards the fact that Dana Moore was in fact not home on the afternoon that Michael went missing which really wouldn't be that significant in and of itself. But then we have to ask ourselves, why is Dana lying to the police and lying in court under oath about where she was at that afternoon? And we're going to discuss this more in this week's Friday Follow-Up. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com, who also scored, mixed, and mastered this episode. I want to thank Katie Ross of In Tandem Designs for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Stephanie McConnell, Anna Dindorf, and Sarah Mueller. As always, I want to thank all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending us in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. Don't forget that you can always get a hold of us through our voicemail line at 269 224 2833, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. However, you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>